0: Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwar Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views
1: of the hosts and the guests are their own. Back to the nuclear cast, please don't adjust any of settings in your iPhone or your Samsung or anything else, because this is not Adam. My name is Keith Butler. I was recently had the privilege of being interviewed by Adam, and somebody thought it might be a good idea to turn the tables. So today, you get me as your host, special guest star, and even more special than that is the person I get to interview, who you may have heard before, and that is Dr. Adam Plyther. Ucker Lowther, welcome to the Nuclear Cast.
0: Why? Well, thank you. Uh, I've heard nothing but great things about your show, so it's uh, it's good to be here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and this is probably how the whole interview is going to go—something like that. <laughs> hey, I think we have a really unique, fun opportunity here to to hear from you your experience, your education, all the things that you've done. And we're not going to go through your entire resume here because I think that's not worthy of people's time. They can do that on their own. What I want them to be able to do is to hear what's inside your mind. They've read the articles, they've heard how you ask the questions, but I think it's time for your audience and folks who are interested in the nuclear enterprise to really better get a better understanding of somebody who helped stand up the strategic school for nuclear on the air force all the things that you've done louisiana georgia up in canada all over the place uh i think we need to expose them to a little bit more of what's going on inside your mind how you think what your views issues excuse me what your views are on some of the issues and and in particular what i'd like to focus on today if it's okay with you adam is the the concept the idea the notion the um the topics surrounding low yield nuclear weapons, if you're okay with that.
0: Yeah, that sounds good. That's a big topic right now. Well,
1: it's hopefully something we're going to be able to touch on in the next 20, 30 minutes here, and we'll see how far we get. And I was, I was thinking about this topic and how to, how to tee it up and get an understanding of where we are. It's almost oxymoronic to think of the term low yield and then nuclear weapons. They almost don't go together with each other. Um, Practitioners of the nuclear world, part of the nuclear enterprise, particularly back in the Cold War, this was a common phrase. I mean, we had everything from small little atomic demolitions in the army. We had battlefield nuclear artillery on the battlefield itself, and everything in between up through the megaton yield weapons that are that are out in existence today. So I think before we even get into the questions, we kind of need to frame the understanding of what we're talking about here in the definitions. So I, really my first question for you, Adam, is in your perspective, what is the most generally accepted definition and difference, frankly, between a strategic and a tactical or no, or a non-strategic or a low-yield nuclear weapon?
0: Yeah, that's a great one. so, you know, after the, at the end of the Cold War, the United States had about five thousand what we might call you know battlefield nuclear weapons non strategic nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons they're sort of all the same uh, definition, but generally, what we mean by the term non strategic nuclear weapon is it's it's one that has a range that isn't strategic, so It can't reach from one continent to another. So your ranges could be anywhere from, you know, a short range ballistic missile, which is, you know, in the tens or hundreds of miles up to an intermediate range, which is, I think the definition is 1500 ish miles. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, an atomic munition was 15 or 20 miles, I think. The, you know, you had some of these canister nukes, these backpack nukes yeah, and yeah. you had, you know, they were very low yield. So yields, uh, a, there's no uniform definition for a low yield weapon. So it can be anything from under 10 tons. So the largest in the U S arsenal today, the GBU 43 is a standard munition, the Moab, and that's about 11 tons. Uh, yield 11 tons of TNT. And, and it's, it's a pretty big weapon, you know, cause your conventional munitions don't generate yield in the same way that a nuke does. That's why we have nuclear weapons. So sure, they're sure. much bigger, obviously. And you can have a nuke that generates about that same yield, or you can go up to anything to hundreds of tons or, a kiloton is a thousand tons of TNT. So I would say that for low yield, and this is just sort of arbitrary is things that are below say 10 kilotons. Cause if you think about modern strategic weapons, you know, there's variable yields for some weapons, but, uh, you know, up to the 400 ish kilotons on some of our weapons or mm-hmm. some of the adversaries weapons, so, by and large, strategic nuclear weapons produce a larger yield in the hundreds of kilotons, whereas tactical, non-strategic, theater are shorter range and lower yields. But okay. no sort of accepted definition.
1: Yeah, and I and I think that's part of why even the term non-strategic, tactical, low yield—it's it, kind of hard to wrap your mind around it, um, even for. Practitioners, academics, and folks in the industry that are involved with it, because it does move back and forth. And do you have a non-strategic weapon that can achieve a strategic effect? Do you use a strategic weapon for a tactical objective? I mean, they, they could. It goes back and forth, right? Uh, one of the definitions, or, or the, the purposes that I, as I was researching this topic for today, was. Uh, an analysis or consideration of what use is there, right? So I want to, I want to read this to you and get your thoughts on it and get your sure. perspective. It says the analysis considers the tactical nuclear weapons are those designed to be used on the battlefield in a counter force targeting or for degrading an enemy's military capability or capacity for aggression. Now the, I think the key term there is battlefield battlefield encounter force versus counter value right? When we talk about nuclear deterrence theory and how we target and what we target and why we target the things that we do. But does that sentence, does that resonate with you? Do you agree with it? Do you disagree with it?
0: Yeah, that's a pretty good way also to think about it. So if we think about the range and then we think about the yield and then you can add on the purpose. And so that, that sort of meets that purpose. The, The challenge is, and this is something I I have a colleague at the National Strategic Research Institute, Chris Yaw, And mm. Chris has does yep. a lot of he's been doing a lot of thinking and work. And we're working on some some research wargaming on this topic of ultra low yield nuclear weapons. So in the tens of tons. So if you could think about a nuclear weapon that you could put you know, you could drop or place in the inner courtyard of the Pentagon and would drop the building, but would maybe break the windows, you know, over at Pentagon Row across the highway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's So those kinds of capabilities exist today where you can achieve very discreet effects on a single building or on a very small, you know, target in much the same way that we saw the Gulf War. One was sort of this war of precision weapons. And then subsequently we've gotten even more precise. Uh, Our adversaries in particular, the Russians have been focusing on building, you know, very low yield weapons that can do very discreet things on a battlefield or, you know, it for a very narrow set of targets and they don't, you know, they don't, you can optimize them to, to sort of limit residual radiation. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of technical capability that both the Russians and the Chinese in particular particularly in the last 15 to 20 years is when a lot of the really good work's been done in development. You know, the Russians had a period where they were sort of in chaos and then Vladimir Putin's elected in 1999. And then they sort of started to come out of their, their challenging period. The Russians or the Chinese have been really under Xi, you know, he's in now in his third term Mm -hmm. and even Mm -hmm. before, but President Xi is really trying to advance the military capabilities of China. So we're, you know, we're seeing our adversaries advance their low yield, ultra low yield capabilities all while we're essentially doing nothing. And this is sort of one of the challenges that we have is that the Russians, when we eliminated our european arsenal of tactical nuclear weapons that was you know five thousand ish Mm -hmm. uh they didn't do that because those you know those were not accountable (laughs) weapons under the strategic arms reduction treaties we've signed over the last you know 30 years and so the russians could maintain the ones they had they could build new ones they could expand their arsenal and in many respects and again, Chris, uh, y'all and I and some others have been working on this and have some articles coming out uh, where we, you know, the rationale for the Russians in many respects is the same as the rationale we had during Eisenhower's new look. Mm-hmm. And that is that they they know they cannot defeat NATO and the United States in a conventional conflict in Europe. The Russians understand that they are. I mean, as we're finding out, they they can't defeat a Ukraine with Western weapons, much less a unified NATO force. And that so, therefore, appears
1: to be the case. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, it's challenging. So therefore, they're they're looking to offset that conventional advantage with these types of nuclear systems that won't ultimately lead, and they think it's feasible to fight with nuclear weapons, but not escalate to a strategic conflict.
1: So that one answer alone, I think is enough to unpack in four different episodes of the nuclear cast <sighs> to talk about, uh, I've got some notes here. So I want to, want to hit on a couple of things that you talked about and thank you for that answer. So depending on where you sit on the conversation of nuclear weapons and their use, whether you are for or against or agnostic. um, you bring up some really interesting points. The first one is, and I think there's a lot of people that are, have concerns about this, in fact, I know there are the issue, the concept, the notion, the idea, the capability, the willingness to use a battlefield nuclear weapon in, in the case that you described of a 10 ton, take out the Pentagon scenario, wouldn't that potentially lower the threshold of the cost of use and and this is where that 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 balance the always goes back and forth on it if you have less damage through the use of a nuclear weapon doesn't that increase the risk or lower the barrier of use
0: yeah that's sort of a red herring and for for many in the disarmament community uh what I would submit is that their argument is anything we don't like is strategically destabilizing and reduces the barrier to use. That's sort of their standard answer. Okay. And, but I've never seen any kind of real data that proves what is stabilizing, what is destabilizing, where the risk threshold for use is. So in many respects, it's, it's sort of an educated guess. Mm -hmm. And the what I have, you know, I'm a political scientist by international relations, and so I've studied conflict. And one of the things that I think is a general rule is that weakness is provocative. Weakness is provocative, and I think that Donald Rumsfeld said that, and that was sort of a, a pretty solid observation of history. And so when you allow your adversary, to create a clear asymmetric advantage, that's what's provocative. And that's what could potentially reduce a threshold. But symmetry is not provocative. And so if you create similar capabilities, and I would submit, particularly, I I would submit my disarmament colleagues are looking at this all wrong they haven't studied the lessons of history because if you actually look at the inf treaty what happened in the inf treaty was that the russians had asymmetric capabilities for in europe they 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 far surpassed us in in these short and medium range capabilities mm-hmm. and they would not negotiate them away and then ronald reagan said okay well, what we'll do is, quote, we'll create symmetric capability. So we built Pershing II and Glickum. And although their arsenal was still larger than ours, we balanced risk uh, in the sense that we were going to be able to use these theater nuclear weapons against them. And they s- saw this as not inherently escalating to strategic nuclear war. And that we could take out Moscow in less than 15 minutes and Pershing 2 in, you know, 10 minutes-ish, and that Mm -hmm. they had no ability to stop it. And so ultimately, they wanted to then come to the table and negotiate away what was for them a much, much larger capability than we had. Because although the capability was smaller, we balanced and essentially turned the risk Out of their favor. And so for my power
1: power politics.
0: Yeah. And so for our disarmament colleagues, what what they're doing by opposing slick them in and opposing any low yield capabilities, they're not helping to create stability. They're helping to create instability because they're giving the Russians the belief That they can use those capabilities, they can create a fiat accompli in which we have no ability to respond. And so they're having the exact opposite effect of the outcome they desire.
1: Yeah. Again, three more episodes just came out. (laughs) But while we're chewing on that for a minute, we're going to pause and take a quick break. We'll be back shortly.
0: This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the 15th Annual Nuclear Deterrence Summit. Come join NucleCast at the Summit on February 13th through 15th, 2023 at the Hyatt Regency Crystal City, Arlington, Virginia. Industry and government experts will be discussing management of the nuclear security complex, stewardship of the nuclear stockpile, arms control negotiations, and strategic policy. Stop by the NucleCast booth to say hello. Executive producer Kimberly Charrington and I will be there interviewing guests for upcoming episodes. You can find a registration link to the Nuclear Deterrent Summit with a 15% discount on the NucleCast website at anwadeterred.org slash NucleCast.
1: Okay, welcome back to NucleCast. My name is Keith Butler, and again, I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Adam Louther, the actual owner of nuclear gas, on some questions and some ideas and some thoughts on low yield nuclear weapons. The concept, the idea, the notion of it, the pros and the cons, and we're going to do as much as we can in the time we have left. And I think it's important for everybody listening to this and those who have discussions about these types of issues is that we, this is not new ground. We're not trying to plow anything new here. See that plowshares.
0: That <laughs> <there>. I, got, <laughs> I, I got one. I got one.
1: I got one. That, that we have been doing this for a long time. And it's a little bit of back to the future almost. And it's interesting the dynamics of the conversation and geopolitics and where we are as an international community now. And your comment about where Russia and China have, about how they, and Rumsfeld, to your point about the SECTEF, former SECTEF, saying uh, that, that, that it's a weakness. Uh, and I think that, uh, Lenin and Mao would agree with him and they, and we have seen that and how they have acquired and where they have put their money. So I want to go to the next point here. And that is, um, if we ever found ourselves in a low yield battlefield, nuclear environment, um, what do you think would be the U S response to that? What whether the, independent of whether that was on, you know, U.S. ground or one of our partners or allies, but just in general, the next the next person, the next country, the next nuclear weapon that has dropped in anger since the 9th of August, 1945. Paint that picture for me. What does that
0: look like to you? So honestly, I think it's it could be, yeah, basically two reasons, one, a Russian reason and a Chinese reason. The Russian reason is, I if, if I think like they do, I might use it to force de-escalation of a conflict. So Ukraine is sort of the perfect case. Now, I've written a couple of articles looking at this, and I was looking at a scenario where they use it in the Baltics. After invading the Baltics, then the United States and NATO come to the Baltics aid. And, mm-hmm. you know, as we as we move up through the Suwaki Gap, they pop off a a high altitude airburst. Well, not high altitude, but sort of a fallout free airburst mm-hmm. of a, say a five ten kiloton something that makes an impression but doesn't really cause a lot of damage. And it and so therefore to cause the United States to reconsider uh, that Article Five response you could okay. the ukraine is even more of a sort of a dangerous scenario because it's not a nato member and so therefore technically nato can't organize around article 5 to to respond but you could you could potentially see using it to force capitulation whether it's you know you could also see a low yield 1 or 5 kiloton use and it could be could, it could actually destroy a target, or it could be an airburst designed to send a message. Uh, or in the in the case of China, if you think to the Chinese decide it's go time, they begin the attack on Taiwan. The United States starts pushing forces into the region, and they send you, let's say two or three carrier strike groups towards Taiwan and in the waters ahead of those uh, advancing naval forces, there's a, you know, a low altitude airburst of a one, five, 10 kiloton nuclear weapon that basically says Americans go home. Mm. Uh, and so that's sort of what I think could potentially be, the the next use of a nuclear weapon. I don't think that the probability of strategic nuclear war is, is all that great, but I do think that the probability of a one or a small number of very low, low yield nuclear weapons that are non-strategic systems, because they'll want to differentiate those systems to say, Hey, we're not doing anything strategic, you know, keep your, keep your, your B twos and keep your Bennett man threes at home. So they'll make that distinction to try to separate it because that separation is where they see they have an advantage over the United States. And our response, I I think, you know, that probably as well as I do.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the, the response is, and also in the eye of the beholder, what they think the message may be versus that, how that message is actually received by the rest of the world, the Crimea, what we're dealing with in the Ukraine, how yeah, that was viewed and how it's actually being executed, definitely up for debate. So it sounds to me like what you're describing potentially, at least in the China scenario, is a demonstration of resolve rather than the actual use to achieve a military aim on the battlefield that's an interesting perspective about uh, something that certainly hasn't been done before, at least not in practice anyway. It's been discussed in circles, of course, but it sounds like that could be used and it would certainly put the world back on its heels. And it's important to distinguish when you're talking about uh, an air burst weapon here, that we're not talking about a weapon uh, that, that by definition, the fireball itself does not touch the ground. Therefore, the, uh, scooping up of the radioactive material from the dirt and the ground or water in this case, maybe uh, that, that doesn't happen. It is only a surface or a ground burst where those types of, uh, nuclear effects are achieved or, or, or used in, in for various reasons, as opposed to the high altitude burst where it's up in the, uh, way up in the stratospheric right. or beyond type where you're talking at scintillation issues and satellites and all the different, and there's, there's weapons of hex and desires for that. But isn't it, it is important to note that the nuclear fallout, the radiation, i.e. Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, that was not the case. And so we're talking about a different set of effects that come out of that. And that's an important distinguishing characteristic of what you're describing, at least in the China scenario anyway. Um, so so really good information there and and things to ponder now to getting back a little bit to where we were talking earlier and i know we're 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 already starting to run out of time here soon is hope versus reality you talked earlier about the arms limitations treaties and the 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 imf uh, 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 inf excuse me uh salt and start start all those types of things that were there but yet at the same time, I think there was perhaps a, uh, a, a a series of hopeful notions that, hey, let's get some ground, let's get a little momentum here on the strategic side of things. And then maybe maybe we can get after some of the tactical nuclear weapons. And then and then the peace dividends break out, the cold war is over, and then, hey, we're off to other things. Um, it's about economics, it's about domestic issues, it's about all these things. And meanwhile, To your point from earlier, Russia and China uh, maybe took a break for a minute and then started to realize that we're going to go do other things. And then, hey, we turn around all of a sudden, hey, where did all these things come from? And where did this threat happen? This aggressive nature of what we've got. Can you deter, in your estimation, a low yield battlefield non strategic nuclear threat using strategic weapons? Because what we have in our arsenal is ICBMs, SLBMs, and then bombers, whether that's a cruise missile or a gravity weapon. Now the yields associated with some of those weapons and how that is done. And this keeps in mind the recent SLBM change to have a lower yield weapon in the, in the subs. But do you feel in your estimation that that is enough to deter an adversary from using low yield nuclear weapons?
0: Um, It's, it's not a bet that I would make so I, I wouldn't place any money on, uh, you know, our, our adversaries already know how reluctant the United States is to use nuclear weapons and they understand the feeling in country. They understand American culture far better than we understand Russian or Chinese culture. And they understand mm. the politics at play, which is why they try to influence elections and they understand our reluctance. And I cannot imagine the president who says, if you use a one ten 10 kiloton nuclear weapon in a demonstration strike or to take down some discrete target, we're going to launch ICBMs at you. I don't know of any president that will say that or that will even signal that. So I don't think it's particularly credible. And I don't think, likewise, when for us to say, well, if you do use one of those, we will use our exquisite conventional capability to punish you. I don't think that that's particularly uh, effective either. So I would submit that we are reaching a point in which deterrence is not on a solid foundation. and. We need to really reconsider, and it, good intentions, uh, and trying to signal the Russians and the Chinese that we mean them no harm, is it, is largely ignorant of Russian history, Russian culture, Russian perceptions, and it's mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. and it for the Chinese as well, um, and and I'm not sure. That it's these are well thought out ideas.
1: So this, I think, is going to bring me to one of my last questions here, and I want to reference the two thousand eighteen Nuclear Posture Review, and specifically uh, two points I wanted to bring out in the side here. And I'll read this to you: Russia's belief that the limited nuclear first use, potentially using low yield nuclear weapons, can provide such an advantage that is based in part on Moscow's perception that its greater number and variety of non-strategic nuclear systems provide a coercive advantage in crisis and at the lower end of conflict. Fast forward one, two paragraphs. It will raise the nuclear threshold and help ensure that potential adversaries perceive no possible advantage in limited nuclear escalation, making nuclear employment less likely. That sentence is a result of the desire to work on low yield nuclear weapons. So one paragraph, it talks about the threat, the next paragraph talks about the response and then the desired outcome of that response, two thousand eighteen NPR. And as late as last year, the Chairman, Joint Chiefs of Staff, was testifying about the continued need for that. And in this case, Slickham N. Now, recently, just this year, uh, the Biden administration had said, "No, we are not doing that," and that we have enough deterrence to avoid that type of a conflict. So, for the last question for you is. Um, what do you think has changed what what has changed in the in geopolitics the international stage what has changed between china and russia the united states to have what is in in the world of nuclear deterrence and weapons and capability a relatively significant shift in the perspective from the 2018 npr to where we are
0: now so i don't think I would only say that the the threat has become more uh, visible, and it's it's more prevalent, and than it it was a few, even a few years ago. And our inability or unwillingness to respond has emboldened adversaries. And and I might just point out that f- for those that really might not understand the feasibility of using low-yield nuclear weapons. And so one of the things that's important is to understand nuclear weapons' effects. And a nuclear if you think about nuclear weapons' effects, think about, let's say, hypothetically, a 10-kiloton mm-hmm. yield. Or let's say, I'll give you a 1. So if you want to use a 1-kiloton weapon, and that's a thousand tons. So it's, you know, the, if a GBU 43, the largest conventional weapon is 11 tons, this is a thousand tons. So it's a good bit bigger, but it's still relatively small. So if you were to have an air burst for this one kiloton weapon, you can achieve uh, 12 PSI. That's the, 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 pounds per square inch that you need to destroy a hardened concrete facility out to 300, Mm -hmm. draw a circle around ground zero, out 360 meters. And so that's where you have that range. So it's not miles. It's a relatively small area. And then take radiation, what we call prompt ionizing radiation. And so- Mm -hmm if you wanted to have the ability to have death among 400 or sorry, among 50% of people exposed. So 50% of people exposed will die if they're not treated that, that uh, circle goes out to about 880 meters. That's it. 880 meters. And after you detonate this, without significant uh without significant harm of of radiation exposure, if you wait twenty four hours, you can progress through the area and remember the area is only eight hundred and eighty meters, so you could progress around it almost instantly so these are in and, and your air burst is at about six hundred feet two hundred nineteen meters, so you can really have some pretty discrete effects. And as you go to like a 10 kiloton yield, the ranges go out to about a thousand meters on all sides. And you can move through that, that irradiated area within a couple of days without significant effects. So the usability of these weapons, as we, as we think and talk about threats and Russians have these types of weapons and Chinese they're really sitting there thinking, well, well, what would the damage be? And can we, can we kill or destroy a specific building, but not irradiate, you know, areas such that we have a, you know, a Chernobyl that's, you know, 40 years later, where we're still producing radiation. So they think about these kinds of effects where they can move through areas a day or two later, where they're not creating residual radiation and they've worked this out and they understand the weapons effects. And so they've built the capabilities to, to achieve these objectives. And I just, I I worry that by virtue of allowing them because they, they look at the United States and they say the United States is in, you know, having a lot of domestic turmoil And the United States can't seem to get its act together. So therefore, they're looking for opportunities. And then they're looking for asymmetric advantages. And the United States has allowed them to create an asymmetric advantage by virtue of not building these non-strategic tactical battlefield, whatever you want to call them, these kinds of weapons. And I worry that They all, you know, if they say, if you say deterrence credibility equals capability times will, our Mm -hmm. adversaries Mm -hmm. are looking at us and they're saying they don't really have the capability. And from what they're saying publicly, they don't seem to have the will either, which then means our deterrence credibility is pretty low. And that, that's what worries me because from my perspective, I don't want, nuclear weapons use. I don't want war. I want peace because peace brings prosperity and, and prosperity means that instead of spending money fighting wars, you, you invent things like smartphones and in your tax rates are lower. So therefore I get to buy the Ford F-150 off-road edition because I have the disposable income to pursue my, you know, my driving pleasure. But fighting wars are expensive, and I don't want to do that. And so, therefore, I want to prevent war, and I want to prevent the use of nuclear weapons. And as best I can tell, the way to do that is to make sure your adversary never thinks that you've created a seam they can fill or a scenario where they can get away with nuclear weapons use.
1: Mm. Wow. Wow. Powerful. Powerful arguments right there. Okay. I said that was the last question. I'm going to use a little bit of executive (laughs) privilege as the guest host, and we're going to do a very fast couple of questions in the round. Yes yes or no, is America prepared for the use of low-yield nuclear weapons? Does America need a larger number of tactical nuclear weapons? Absolutely, yes. Do you feel that moving forward that the international stage And international security issues will become more or less stable, less stable. Last question. Would you like your microphone back? You
0: did a great job. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. You know, this gives me, you know, I got to, when I'm on this side of it, I got to listen to all these other people talking, but you know, as uh, (laughs) you know, you don't get into podcasting or I used to do whenever I was in college, I did talk radio. Uh, in Tuscaloosa, okay. you know, I went to graduate school at Alabama and so I did talk radio. Oh, yeah. You only get It'll, into that if you like that. to hear yourself talk.
1: No, that's a good point. Adam, this has been a really fun Episode. Uh, This is my third podcast and the first one hosting and asking the questions. And boy, that I have a lot of fun! Thank you so much for asking me to come on to the team and the staff at Anwa. Really enjoyed it. Uh, Continue to do what you do, and I will give you back the microphone for party. All right. Well,
0: thanks. uh, Thanks for doing that. I appreciate you standing in. It was great. I now know I can take a vacation, and I know who to call. So (laughs) you've got a you've got a job. And, uh, I guess I'll let you, uh, lead us out of the show.
1: All right. Hey, thanks again, everyone for listening. Thanks for continuing to be engaged in the nuclear enterprise. This stuff matters. It really does. And if we don't make sure that both sides of the argument are being agreed upon, at least discussed and brought to the table, then shame on us. This is Keith Butler. We'll see you next time.